Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 29th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, uh, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Plus, we, plus we have a guest. Let's get straight on. Well, we get straight on, on this bank holiday, of course. Um, let's start with um, <clears throat> really BBC reporting or non-reporting, but reporting of Ukraine. And um, a number of people now really starting to pick up on the fact that, well, do we even have a BBC or is it simply an extension of Zelensky's propaganda machine? Uh, this was the headline on the website a little while ago, Ukraine war, Zelensky praises Air Force after Russia's largest drone attack yet. And of course, much of the size of the, and scale of these attacks simply not being reported. Uh, but what is being reported is just some ridiculous claims by the Ukrainians. So here is the BBC. Military commanders said Ukraine's air defence forces had shot down 58 out of 59 Iranian-made drones launched by Russia. And uh, then it went on for this uh, quote from Zelensky, every time you shoot down enemy drones and missiles, lives are saved, you are heroes. Most of the destruction was averted and most of the lives that could have been taken by these drones were saved. I'm grateful to each and every person who made it possible. And of course, the reality of this is that it's simply not credible uh, because the information coming in uh, from on the ground, people taking uh, videos in Ukraine on their phones and sharing them, uh, plus the reports from the Russians themselves clearly demonstrate massive damage is now being carried out. Raids uh, have been taking place across the, um, across the whole front over the weekend. Uh, very he heavy drone attacks by the Russians, immense damage on Ukraine infrastructure. Uh, but the BBC, of course, simply not reporting this. And the extent now is that uh, local media is mocking uh, the mainstream press for their inability to report the truth. So multi-billion pound BBC organisation doesn't want to report the facts, doesn't want to report the truth on the ground. It's simply going to give you watered down or maybe even pumped up Ukrainian propaganda. Uh, meanwhile, the BBC at its best or worse, uh, in a uh, recent interview with Andre Kellin, the Russian ambassador, I picked up on this, but also Mike picked up on it separately. So we're really going to dig into the BBC's on-screen efforts. Let's have a look at this clip. Uh, idealistic mistake to think that Ukraine may prevail. Russia is 16 times bigger than Ukraine. We have enormous resources and we, we can, we, we, we hasn't just started yet to, to uh, act very, uh, very seriously. And you Ukraine is living at the moment. Seriously. So this could no, get I a don't lot think worse? So. I don't think so. Could this go on then for I hope that five it will years, not go ten on. years? That depends on uh, the efforts in escalation of uh, war that is being undertaken by NATO countries, especially by the UK. Uh, sooner or later, of course, this escalation may uh, got a, a new dimension, which we do not need and we do not want. What do you mean then by a new dimension? 
New Dimension, it is a long-range uh, missiles that has been uh, provided by United Kingdom. It is an escalation. Tanks provided, aircrafts provided. So we're not afraid of aircrafts, in fact. We have downed uh, now, by now, uh, 430 uh, Ukrainian aircrafts. And provision of new, it is only, uh, will add to these uh, numbers. There is evidence, no. widespread of evidence of war crimes being committed by Russia. Mm. Why will you not tell the truth about what the world can see? Uh, this is easy, uh, actually. We do documentation of every crime, what is happening. Uh, we documenting every crime, what is happening uh, by in Russian Donbass, troops? By Ukrainian troops. What in about Donbass. your own troops' behavior? What do you want from me? No. I'm asking you a question about mm -hmm. what Russian troops what's, are doing what's the on the ground. Of your question? My question is, why mm -hmm. won't you tell the truth about what the world can see, what the United Nations has documented? War crimes being carried out by Russian troops in the United Ukraine. Nations cannot document anything because Secretariat is not empowered to, to, to make any investigation. Well, Michael, I just found that uh, truly appalling. I watched it as was. That was the clip that I saw embedded in the uh, BBC uh, website. Um, her whole demeanour is wrong. Um, she's trying in a really pathetic way, in my opinion, to, to catch him out, and he's not falling into those traps. Uh, but when she talks about prolonging the war. Of course, it is the West at the moment. It's the UK. It's the British government uh, alongside the Americans that are doing everything they can to drag this war out for as long as possible. But she's too naive and too puzzled to grasp this. David, what, was your, what were your thoughts on the interview, the conduct of the interview? We're going to look at some further clips in just a minute. <clears throat> well, it's, it's kind of low-grade an attempt to play gotcha politics and, and it, it just doesn't seem very appropriate given what's happening. Um, and, I mean, putting, putting to him the conduct of, of the Russian troops on the ground is a fair enough question. Um, but it, it comes against the, the very sizable doubts about the, the Western media's narrative on all of that, particularly the Bukha uh, massacre, and was that carried out by the Russians or was it carried out by Ukrainian forces as they retook the territory? Um, the, there's a lot of evidence to suggest the Russians are on the right side of this. This has not been acknowledged by the BBC. So you've got this strange example of a very one-sided um, uh, uh, propaganda campaign carrying out ostensibly a, an interview to get at the truth with someone who is, who's, who's part of, the, op, of the, the, the opposite nation in a war. It's never going to shed any light onto it. The BBC either approaches this in a more neutral, more nuanced, more truth-based um, method, um, or don't do the interview because what are you going to get from this? I, I don't see really the point. Uh, indeed, and I mean, my thoughts on it. I mean, it's it's right that an interviewer should ask uh, hard, difficult questions. Uh, but Laura Kunzberg was just being aggressive. Uh, you know, it was it was totally aggressive. When, when did you stop beating your wife? Is it's really yes. the way she was coming in at this? Everything was uh, preordained. Uh, the Russians are guilty, and here's the BBC going to rub their noses in it. But as, as as we see, the BBC really has got no platform to stand upon. 
Um, so what uh, the Russians did, actually, because obviously that uh, interview went out on the Laura Kunzberg show yesterday morning uh, as a short, uh, you know, a 15-minute uh, interview. Uh, the Russians, in fact, published the full interview on, on the Russian Embassy London uh, YouTube channel, which is about 35, 40 minutes or so. Let's just look at another section of this. There are, though, now unthinkable things happening if you go back a few months. There are armed groups loyal to Kiev who have crossed your border and even mm -hmm. temporarily been able to take some territory. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a humiliation for a country like Russia? No, you know that these, uh, we do not uh, count these people, nationalists, uh, told nationalist group uh, who were playing uh, on the side of Ukraine that has gone into Russia and in fact this, they were terrorists, huge terrorists. But they have done it with support of uh, our Ukrainian army who was shelling houses from the other side of uh, the border. And uh, moreover, I will say that they have used American equipment, American blinded cars uh, and uh, other American equipment. And moreover, I will say, just, just a second, I have to finish because it's important. And uh, if you will look into Wall Street article dated of 18 of May, it is said that the uh, British uh, special forces have been training Ukrainians and assisting them and guiding them into the acts of sabotage. Now, she was quite uh, disparaging about uh, that response uh, from Kellen there. Um, but I just want to make the point that the Financial Times, uh, a week or so ago, published this article, Militias Used U.S. Armored Vehicles to Attack Over Russian Border. And this article does a very good job of explaining what happened, apparently, but it seems to fit very much with what Andre Kellen was saying. So, but the BBC didn't acknowledge this during the interview. Uh, and in fact, as I say, she was pretty disparaging about it. But uh, on the issue of his allegation that the people that took part in this attack were terrorists, I just want to highlight uh, one person because this person, uh, Alexander uh, Skachkov, uh, is uh, photographed in the FT article here. He's the man on the right-hand side there. And uh, he is quite clearly uh, what would be described as a Nazi. Uh, there's no question about this. Uh, he uh, uh, has been, let's see, uh, he, well, let's look at the photograph of him, another photograph of him. This actually, uh, Eric Toller from Bellingcat pushed this out. Now, if you look at what's on his T-shirt, uh, the T-shirt there says uh, uh, Volkischer uh, Bulbachter, if I've pronounced that correctly, I'm sure uh, Alex will give me a hard time over that. But anyway, that is the name of the original daily newspaper of the German Nazi part party from 1920 onwards. He's got it emblazoned across his chest. Uh, he traffics in Nazi flags, in patches. Uh, he uh, was prosecuted or he was arrested, sorry, for marketing the Ukrainian translation of the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto in 2020. Uh, and so there are links then to other so-called far-right extremist uh, events. So, you know, the question then is, uh, who is telling the truth? And, uh, you know, the Financial Times, as I say, that article seems to fit very much with what uh, Andre Kellen was saying, and the BBC not prepared to acknowledge that. But uh, I'll just give you an example of where the conversation went towards the end. Uh, let's just look at this. Just finally, Ambassador, it's remarkable speaking to you this afternoon that you are happy to repeat claims that have been disproven. You are happy to try to deflect questions. You are happy to mislead our audience about the truth. Maybe you're even lying to yourself about what is really going on. I just wonder 
Russia has unleashed a Laura, terrible uh, conflict that is I hurting think, its own uh -huh. people as well as Ukrainians. I think I have told you, if you will try to uh, offend me once again, we will just stop this interview. Too. I'm not trying to offend you. Mm -hmm. I have a final question. Well, I think she was trying to offend Absolutely. him. I think she, she was trying to get a rise out of him. Yeah. Uh, and just to look at how the other British press covered this as the Express, uh, I will end this interview as the quote, Kunzberg has Putin puppet rattled in surreal British clash. BBC. He, Sorry, in, in surreal BBC clash. He was in no way, David, he was in no way rattled by that. He very calmly told her uh, to wind her neck in, as far as I can see. Yeah, she didn't have him rattled. It was surreal, though. There was definitely a surreal element of that, because this, is, this was um, two people speaking an entire, entirely different language, two people with an entirely different view of reality. And, and, and we know the unrealness of the BBC narrative, the, uh, the main, now the mainstream Western institutional narrative on almost any subject, right? You know, what's a man, what's a woman? You get this unreal narrative, this, this, this belief system that is, is it's so important to them that they hang on to, and it's, it's devoid of reality. And, and that's what was on display there. And against this, the Russian, is, uh, the Russian ambassador is, is, is basically describing reality. Okay, it's from a Russian perspective. It's not going to be unbiased in any way, but it's, but it's noticeably real. And because of that, there was very little actual communication going on there that I could see. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, of course, the interview should have gone out with a caveat over it. Let's just pop a picture up on screen to get a feel for it. Imagine what the British public's reaction had been if the clip had this uh, as a caveat. The BBC is an independent broadcaster that was funded by the UK government to set up and train Suspilny, a key Ukrainian government-approved media outlet. The BBC also works closely with the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian Ministry of Defence on war reports, stories, misinformation, disinformation and propaganda. And this is the truth of the matter, because, of course, for months now, the BBC has simply regurgitated uh, each and every claim by the Ukrainians, uh, whether it's completely false or baseless or ridiculous or obviously propaganda. But that's the reality of it. And of course, what the BBC is not giving is anything on the other side. And several members of our audience have said to me, why, uh, why has the UK column not been reporting about the horrific uh, injuries and deaths that uh, civilians have experienced in the Donbass. Uh, but pictures here of children um, damaged in Ukrainian shelling. Uh, of course, the BBC simply doesn't report this. Well, I, I think it's very unfair to suggest that we haven't been because we've been talking about this for years, uh, <laughs> much longer than this conflict itself has been going on. Well, the, this is true, Mike, but uh, my comment really is, is echoing back that people are picking up on this and right. they regard it as, a, as an important thing that the BBC isn't covering. But uh, what, else, what can we talk about? Well, David, you picked up on this image uh, which uh, I think says it all, BBC Vilify. And uh, I had picked up on this really excellent article from TCW and uh, the conservative woman. And um, what are they talking about here? The exponential growth of manipulated and distorted news reports and video means that seeing is no longer believing. Our dwindling numbers of 
consumers tell us that they can no longer trust that the video in their news feed is genuine. This is why we at the BBC must urgently begin to show and share the work we do behind the scenes to check and vilify truthful but inconvenient information to ensure that it does not appear on our platforms. Now, I'm going to encourage people to go to uh, the Conservative woman here to have a, a look at this short but really excellent article. Um, but it's, uh, it's really taking the mickey out of the BBC as not fit for purpose anymore. And their little example is that uh, um, growing calls to investigate an abnormally high number of excess deaths and the possible links to the wonderful COVID-19 vaccine our teams have extensively researched this issue. Verdict, we've been told by none other than the chief medical officer and the spokesperson from Pfizer that those calling for the investigation are deluded enemies of the science. And then it says fact-checked by BBC Vilify. So people, of course, absolutely now seeing through the BBC and beginning to challenge them. But it's not only people in UK. Let's have a look at this little clip of the head of the African National Congress uh, taking BBC Stephen Sakur to task uh, over a visit uh, by, or a possible visit by Putin. Right, we don't have that video, I'm afraid, Brian. Okay, well, that's a real shame. If we'd been able to share our video clip, uh, you would have seen this excellent African gentleman um, simply stop stopping the uh, interview uh, by saying, well, of course, you're pointing fingers at uh, Putin and the Russians, but what about all the crimes that have been committed by UK and the West? And he specifically majors on Iraq. OK, so the other piece of news here is that if the BBC is bad, then the Ministry of Defence seems to have really lost the plot. The best they could do, 29th of May, was to talk about the fact that the Russians had held a security exercise around the Crimea bridge and uh, they'd use smoke. And this, uh, this meant that there was a, a comment uh, by the MOD saying that, well, they did use smoke as part of their exercises. Um, but uh, in practice, the Russian use of deception and smoke had generally been ineffectual in the Ukraine war, likely because of a lack of strong central planning function and poor low-level battle discipline. So a few smoke grenades get set off in a training exercise on the Kersh Bridge, and this is translated into a major problem on the battlefield. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, but I couldn't make this up because alongside it, the Ministry of Defence said this, 14.6 million Ukrainians are in need of mental health, reproductive health, and nutritional uh, support. So are we surprised since we've created the war, which is probably impacting on their mental health, but I'm really surprised that apparently the war created by the UK, the US, and NATO is impacting on the reproductive health of the Ukrainians. Perhaps it's the dads are all dead, so we can't uh, produce a new generation of uh, Ukrainian children. And uh, I, I'm just going to say on that, British MOD loses the plot. And uh, over to you, Mike. Right. So, uh, well, just got a quick flash of that. Your active uh, is claiming this is an exclusive. So NATO to upgrade Ukraine's partner status without offering 
Swift membership is the headline. Uh, and uh, what they're saying is that, uh, you know, following Ukraine's efforts to join NATO uh, eight months ago, well, that has sort of remained on the back burner. Uh, but uh, in fact, they are uh, moving forward with a closer relationship anyway. So uh, the, com the upcoming uh, NATO uh, uh, summit in Vilnius uh, is going to convert what is currently called the NATO-Ukraine Commission, uh, which is all about cooperative activities uh, and consultation. And they're going to create a, a Ukraine-NATO Council instead, uh, which is uh, bringing uh, much closer political partnership is how they describe it. Uh, so um, now NATO foreign ministers are meeting this week in Oslo, and this is going to be discussed further. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that. Now, in the meantime, then, uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry uh, has made this statement uh, a couple of days ago. So this is Maria Zakharova uh, talking about uh, the Wall Street Journal publication on possible partition of British citizens and terrorist attacks uh, on Russia. Uh, and uh, so she's saying that Moscow may cut diplomatic relations with the UK over the UK's role in this. Uh, and then later in the day, uh, they followed up with a, another press release uh, because uh, they summoned the United States or some United States diplomats uh, in order to file a strong protest. Uh, provocative statements is what they were unhappy with. Unacceptable remarks by Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, who had said uh, to CNN about a week ago, uh, we've not placed limitations on Ukraine being able to strike on its territory within its international recognized borders. Uh, we believe Crimea is in Ukraine and so on. So the Russians are probably pretty unhappy about the situation. But in the meantime, Lavrov uh, even going further. So he's saying, uh, for now, Washington is egging its European satellites on. Uh, to antagonize uh, the Russian Federation, thinking they can get away with anything. Uh, Washington believes that its self-preservation is ensured by the Atlantic Ocean. This also represents a serious fallacy if they're preparing to bring the world to the very brink of World War III. So uh, the comments from Russia uh, continuing to get stronger uh, as the uh, rhetoric builds uh, from the West and the sort of poking the stick continues from the West uh, and closer relations, which, you know, this issue of Ukraine and NATO, that was Russia's red line, and we continue to attempt to cross that red line Absolutely. on a daily basis. Yep. Um, okay, now, uh, Mark, let's uh, come to you, and uh, we're, we're going to kick off with uh, a little bit of Bilderberg-related Bilderberg news, I suppose, but this is more to do with the media, and we're beginning with uh, Alex Springer. Yes, this is a branch off of what I've reported the last two weeks on Bilderberg 2023. I'm calling it Bilderberg All in the Family. You might say they're about to turn 70 in terms of the years of their meetings. Axel Springer, of course, this is uh, Matthias Dopfner. We talked about him last week. Um, sure enough, The Economist, uh, published by Zanny Mitten Beddoes, uh, with whom uh, Mr. Um, Dopfner was walking. Uh, for a video that we showed last week, uh, taking a break from Bilderberg. Well, The Economist did him a favor here and did this puff piece or promo piece, and he's making a major foray into America media-wise. And this shows how the Bilderberg network works. It's a, a uh, you might say, museum-quality uh, example of how it works. And uh, Axel Springer SE, which is the uh, media conglomerate that Mr. Doffner uh, runs, uh, the KKR is the majority owned. Uh, this next um, 
Next slide here. KKR's majority owns Axel, Axel Springer. They're the majority owner. KKR is Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts and Company, a New York City-based global investment company. Uh, Mr. Kravis in that name is Henry Kravis, a longtime Bilderberger, whose wife, they're both shown here, uh, uh, Josie Marie uh, Kravis. Uh, she has the American Friends of Bilderberg charity and co-chairs the Bilderberg Steering Committee. Mr. Kravis, her husband, is on that steering committee as well, as is Zanny Mittenbettos, the above-named editor-in-chief of The Economist, which did that promo piece uh, for, mix, for Mr. Doppner, and so on and so forth. Moving forward from there, um, Axel, Axel Springer is a major player in the mass media cartel. I'll just share some of this. It's a European multinational digital and popular periodical publishing house, which is the largest in Europe with numerous multimedia news brands such as Build, I might call it Bilge, Develt, and Fact, I guess F-A-K-T is the takeoff on the word fact, I might say faked, tongue in cheek. And they employ more than 15,000 people, uh, pretty high revenues, uh, Euro 559 million in the financial year of 2015, that's going back a ways. Um, uh, they're headquartered in Berlin, Germany, and the company, uh, Axel Springer, is active in more than 40 countries, including its subsidiaries, its joint ventures, and licensing. And we can move on from there to learn more about this. This is a clip or excerpt from that Economist promo piece that Zanny Mittenbetto so uh, graciously did for her Bilderberg media partner, Mr. Doppner. And uh, she mentions here, or it's an unbylined article like so many in The Economist, but it's under her tutelage. Matthias Doppner is a polarizing figure in Germany. Leftists loathe him for leading Axel Springer, a publishing giant, because of the aggressive gutter journalism of Bild, its flagship tabloid that helps, helps set the tone of, of the political debate. And conservatives, were told, take umbrage at his provocative pronouncements. But um, across the Atlantic, Mr. Doppner does not provoke similar passions, but that's about to change, the economist is predicting here, because his ambition is to turn his company, Axel Springer, into America's top digital publisher uh, from number four today. Now he's seeking number one. And uh, Springer, Axel Springer, already owns Politico, a noted Capitol Hill uh, news journal and website. So they're really trying to build there and make a foray into America. Uh, moving forward, um, Financial Times, another Bilderberg partner, also active in the Global Cities movement, of course. Uh, they talk about a uh, Politico deal gives Axel Springer profits and a U.S. platform. So the ownership of Politico is the main leverage to get this uh, Bilderberg affiliate, Axel Springer, into the U.S. market and try and make it number one in the digital market. That's the plan here. And this is how the Bilderberg network works. Um, FT mentions here in, in buying Politico, Axel Springer is seeking to find specialized revenue streams that the big, big tech companies can't tap and wrest some of the mainstream money back. And without getting into all the details on that one, what that means is, um, as it mentions at the bottom here, Last year, for the first time, Facebook, Google, and Amazon sucked up the majority of all U.S. ad spending. Many media businesses now see subscriptions as a more reliable source of revenue, and some recorded impressive increases last year amid lockdowns and the U.S. election, etc. But Axel Springer wants to get some of that money back from those big 
uh, high tech companies and get new sources of revenue at the same time. Meanwhile, those uh, uh, high tech companies, social media companies are really vacuum vacuuming up all the revenue. So there's going to be a tug of war there for that revenue. Um, we probably need not say much here. This is the owner of um, uh, uh, Politico or the former owner of Politico. Uh, he's <clears throat> Robert Albritton. He uh, is the owner and founder of Capital News Company, the parent company of Capitol Hill Political Newspaper and the website Politico. Um, uh, Axel Springer, of course, as I said, is moving in on Politico. And th that's just a brief honorable mention of Mr. Al Britton. Uh, this is the Axel Springer Award, um, something a little less expected. Uh, this award is given to outstanding personalities who are exceptionally innovative uh, create new markets and change markets, help shape culture and face up to their social responsibility. The award, which does not involve a cash prize, was presented for the first time in 2016. Some notable winners of the Axel Springer Media Award include the very first year Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook in 2016, 2018 Jeff Bezos of Amazon, of course a Bilderberg semi-regular, uh, 2020, Elon Musk needs no introduction, I suppose. And 2022, just last year, the most excellent president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky. That's a rather interesting one there for the Axel Springer Award, and it definitely shows the, the bias. Now, another part of this Bilderberg all in the family thing, um, I mentioned this last week, but it deserves a enlargement or amplification, you might say. Um, Palantir's carp. Uh, Alex Karp is the first Western CEO to visit Le Zelensky amid the invasion. I mentioned last week that was on June 2nd, 2022, on the eve of that year's Bilderberg meeting in Washington, D.C. I put an inset picture there at the World Economic Forum of Alex Karp to show what he looks like, uh, a more direct uh, view of him. And moving from there, um, we have Bloomberg. Uh, now, the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg, John Micklethwaite, is a regular at Bilderberg as well. Again, part of the Bilderberg network. So Bloomberg is really stirring the pot here. This is a much more recent article. Palantir signs on for reconstruction work in war-torn Ukraine. So there's a deeper partnership since that June meeting of last year. And this, this is just a quick picture of um, John Micklethwaite to the left, the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg, and Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel is a, uh, a financier in, in much of what we're talking about in these connections with Ukraine. So those are two more Bilderberg regulars. Is Ukraine, in this next slide, it asks the question, is Ukraine using Palantir? Ukrainian officials first used Palantir software to help resettle Ukrainian refugees to the UK, Lithuania, and Poland. The country has since expanded its use of the software to assist with military operations, very notable there including analyzing satellite images. This is according to Mikhailo Fedorov, Ukraine's deputy PM for Innovation, Education, Science, and Technology, and he's the Minister of Digital Transformation. And we'll go from there. Uh, Palantir signs on for reconstruction work in war-torn Ukraine. And uh, this is just more of the same, but notice the second paragraph. Co-founded by the tech billionaire Peter Thiel, Palantir has been working with Ukrainian officials since last year, providing software and incorporating artificial intelligence technologies to power battlefield decision-making. The latest partnership 
uh, will focus on reconstruction with an emphasis on reestablishing schools, of all things, in war-torn areas. So Peter Thiel, one Bilderberger, is uh, um, uh, working with, he actually helped create Palantir, excuse me, Thiel helped create Palantir, and then Palantir is in turn uh, working with Ukraine. So uh, that's a pretty good snapshot of the Bilderberg Network in its current um, venue and some of their most recent activities. In a way, it's par for the course, gentlemen, but I think it's intensifying and getting deeper. So uh, there'll be more from time to time in the way these connections work. Yeah, thank you. thank you for that, Mark. And of course, it's this level of globalist government that's really in control of the war in Ukraine. So uh, decisions are not really being made by UK politicians. It's way beyond their pay grade. Um, but to see things like the use of AI or trials of AI in battlefield uh, decision making, I just find appalling. We're using real human lives as the targets while we play with this system, these yeah. types of systems. Well, later on, we'll be coming on to the MHRA again. We're doing that with medication. So is there any reason not to do it with weapons? It's the same no. attitude, isn't it? But anyway, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You can join us there. You'd be very welcome as a member and that support very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially on ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, and uh, David, uh, let's just talk about a couple of uh, videos, uh, interviews you've done. So Stephen Sizer, first of all. Yeah, Stephen Sizer, who was uh, given an almost life ban from being a, a priest in the Church of England uh, over his comments and position on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, he was essentially labelled with an anti-Semitic um, tag, and completely unjustifiably, in my opinion. And if you see the video, if you watch the video, I'm sure you'll come to a similar conclusion. Um, and we uh, we discuss his, his his work, looking at the Israel-Palestine conflict, and his experience of what happens when you say things which are unpopular with with some, and uh, when um, when um, powers then start to act against you as an individual. Um, he was very badly let down by the organisation which he was part of for most of his life, and um, but is uh, still gallant and unbowed uh, through that and is still speaking out and is writing and is thinking and um, has overcome, if you want, the, the pressures that, that were applied to him to, uh, to silence him. Uh, okay, and just very quickly, a couple of others here. Simon Elmer, first of all. Yes, this is, uh, this is this, the second in what looks like being a, a three-part uh, series of talks with Simon Elmer. Uh, in this, we discuss uh, the, about the first half of his excellent book, A Road to Fascism, which looks at uh, all of the lessons uh, that he learned during the COVID crisis and the government response to it and the uh, assaults on our liberty. Yes, and uh, upcoming, then we've got Dr. Judith Brown. Uh, yes, so this is all about fact-checking fact and fact-checkers. Uh, so Dr. Judith Brown has examined um, their origins, their funding, uh, and the nature of the beast. Uh, hopefully, uh, Mariana Spring will also watch that one. Yes, okay. 
Now let's move uh, on to the Frenethi uh, ladies' case um, and uh, there have been updates because this has now been discussed in the Scottish Parliament. Yes, there's been quite a bit of movement forward. We reported last week that Police Scotland had charged uh, a woman uh, in connection with the Frenethi case. She appeared in court and that case is going forward. Um, and uh, following on uh, on Thursday last week, there was a debate in Parliament organised by Colin Smith, an MSP from South Scotland. Um, and here you see the uh, outline of it, and I'll just read the first sentence. It, it proposes that Parliament recognises what it considers as the inspirational women who have bravely come forward to highlight the plight of the reported hundreds of survivors of physical, mental and sexual abuse at Fernethy House Residential School. Um, now, we went into this, um, we went into the Parliament building. It's a somewhat surreal experience as well, because the, the security as you go in, it was on the day of First Minister's questions, the security is quite oppressive. Uh, you go through airport, uh, light security to get in, you then have handbags, cases, um, phones removed, and then you're just kind of frisked again before you go in to sit in the chamber and watched very carefully the whole time. There is an oppressive air about this, not very good. It's, uh, it seems to be to intimidate anyone who might wish to uh, carry out a protest during First Minister's questions. There have been several. Um, and then after First Minister's questions, which I would have to say was exceptionally dull, uh, this was the next debate uh, scheduled. And of course, the first thing that happens is about 80%, 90% of the MSPs get up and leave. Um, I would have to say, that really hurt the Frenetti women, right? That They really felt that. They felt that as a slap in the face. Now, it wasn't a surprise because it happens in all parliaments, it would seem, in, in cases like this. But they were very disappointed by that. And I, I actually think they were right. Um, this next slide is the people who sponsored the, the, the debate. Uh, many of these people didn't actually stay for the debate. Uh, and I haven't seen any of them put any information out on uh, social media about the debate. But to get to the meat of it, uh, here you see a photograph of uh, Colin Smith, who organised the debate, uh, photographed uh, with uh, the Frenetti uh, ladies who uh, turned up to listen. Um, so the first clip we have here is uh, Colin Smith uh, describing the situation. Dozens of those brave survivors are here today in the gallery. They can't speak in this chamber, so, presiding officer, I want to share their story, a story that needs to be heard. I want to give a voice to those women's fight for justice. I want to help ensure what happened to those wee girls at Fernethy is finally properly acknowledged. And, and uh, he went on in this fashion and uh, recounted several of the stories which he'd heard from the Fernethy women and was quite close to tears, I think, by the time uh, he finished. Um, uh, other people who uh, were speaking included Jamie Green of the Conservatives. We have a, a quote from him here. He says, whatever we do, we must say exactly what Colin Smith said to these people. You are not alone. The Parliament is with you and it will support you. If we can say it and the government can say it, that's what I want to hear. Now, I would point out here that I'm sure uh, that Jamie Green is entirely sincere in what he's saying. But this is about saying things, right? And, and what the, what the Fernethi women need is action, right? Words are fine, but it's only action that will really define the Scottish government and the parliament in this regard. Uh, another uh, 
main supporter of the Fornetti women has been Alex Cole Hamilton. He also spoke in the debate. Some of the survivors sit in the gallery today. They do so at a high price. For each time they recount the abuse they suffered, they are forced to relive it. I want to thank them for coming and to say to them today that we hear you, we believe you, we are on your side, we will stand with you in your fight for justice. You have dealt with this far too long alone. Well, you are not alone anymore. So let us hope that proves to be correct. Uh, we have the uh, Scottish Liberal Democrats, uh, the party of Alex Cole Hamilton, have put out some information on their media about the debate. Uh, he would see Mr Cole Hamilton says, these stories have hurt me to my heart. It made me want to go to war for all those affected. Now, I, I, I do hope that's true. Um, we have had certain, prime, uh, certain um, uh, politicians like uh, Boris Johnson comes to mind. Uh, saying he would rather die in, die in a ditch than sign that letter, which he then signed. Um, it's all about, is it talk or is, does it actually mean there's going to be action? Let's hope it's the latter. Uh, Scottish Liberal Democrats um, information went on. They said more than 200 women have now come forward alleging they were sexually, physically and mentally abused in the 1960s and 1970s at Fenethi House. Um, this um, is actually incorrect. 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, and right up to 1990, and one of the one of the women watching from the balcony was um, was was uh, harmed in the in 1990 at Fernethy. So it's it's a full 30 year period, which is one of the most important aspects of the case. Uh, responding for the government, we had uh, Deputy First Minister Shona Robertson. I do understand that the limited records in respect of Fernethy uh, is a particular challenge. So uh, my officials have commenced uh, inquiries with Glasgow City Council to explore the limited records and to establish the circumstances in which children were placed in Fornethy House. I've directed my officials to instruct an independent person to support these inquiries and Glasgow City Council have confirmed that this individual will be permitted access to the relevant archives. Now while I can't direct Glasgow City Council, I have written to the Council Leader to express my expectation that these inquiries will be supported by Glasgow City Council. So this is the first bit of actual action. So an independent person has been, has been, has been appointed to go into the Glasgow City Archives and do something. Now, th this is where it will become critical because if that independent person makes a Fernethy woman the centre of what they do, what they need to know, what they, the information they can provide, the clues, the directions to any investigation that they can provide, and if there's good communication with the Fernethy women, then that will be a very positive development. If it's simply somebody doing something that we don't know what and then writing a report, and then that's it, it's done. If it's a tick box exercise, then that's an entirely different thing. So we'll have to wait and see what it is. But that seems to have been in response to a request by the Fonetti women for assistance with the archives. So that's um, a, a good and positive development, uh, providing it's executed in the right way. Uh, we have a, a final comment here from Shona Robertson. 
Recognising the, the bravery of the, the women who have worked tirelessly to raise awareness of the issues surrounding Fornethy House uh, in their quest for answers. I uh, hope that the level of interest that Parliament has in this issue, together with uh, my commitment to the work that I have outlined today, uh, means that they perhaps leave this place with the, the, at least the confidence that the matters they have raised are being taken um, very seriously indeed and will be uh, addressed as far as it is humanly possible to do so. So that's quite a commitment, don't you think, gentlemen? The, 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 the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government have committed to addressing this to the limit of human ability. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, well, my, my response is, David, if I read it uh, correctly on screen, uh, one of the texts that you put up, uh, there was a sentence that said it was unlikely that these uh, women would be eligible for compensation because they'd only been in the facility for such a short time. And I found that an incredible statement because so the abuse may only take a few minutes, um, but uh, uh, compensation is paid on the basis that you've only been there for a short time, so it doesn't really matter. Did I, did I read that correctly on screen? That is one of the issues with the current uh, what is termed redress scheme. There are many others to do with the limitations it places on the ability of the women to speak out or to take further legal action. Uh, but yes, that is the problem thus far. Um, that's, shall we say, an ongoing debate. A lot of the people in the parliament raised that issue of the redress scheme. The, the women, the Frenetti women, however, are far more interested in actual justice, in proper acknowledgement of what happened, and in full and complete disclosure than they are in money. And this is uh, very, very uh, plainly apparent when you speak to them, as you have. Um, uh, the, this was picked up. This, uh, the Scotsman reported on the debate. The Scotsman had a reporter there who was speaking to the Fernetti women as they came out of the chamber. Um, and uh, the Scotsman report here, survivors of alleged abuse at Fernetti House say they are not being listened to. So the, the, certainly the initial reaction from the women was, this, isn't an, this doesn't really solve our problem. This doesn't take us far enough. Um, so the Scotsman continues to said, uh, they, the women said, uh, we are not getting heard and we can't allow that to carry on. We are annoyed at the amount of MSPs who walked out and didn't want to sit and take part. It's ridiculous. They should have sat there and listened to a statement. It was scandalous. And this is why we feel we will get nothing. So again, it's actions, not words, that define people. And when most of the MSPs left before that debate, the women who were sitting in the balcony, they felt let down. Now, hopefully that's not the way it will actually turn out. But the people who walked out of the chamber have to realise that their actions speak louder than their words. And um, so, you know, I thank you to the ones who didn't leave, but uh, it was disappointing, and it and it did it did it it, it did really offend and hurt the the, the women who were watching. I uh, just want to finish this section, gentlemen, with a press release from the Fernetti girls, just to get a few facts on the table. It's, it reads: Who the Fernetti girls? Fernetti House, thirty-room mansion, set in thirty-nine acres of forest, is bequeathed to the Corporation of Glasgow by Lillian Coates. It was opened as a residential school on Friday the 23rd of June 1961 to cater for convalescent and other Protestant girls aged 5 to 12 from Glasgow. 
quote, many of the children coming to the school had never known the beauty of the countryside, end quote, said the convener of the Glasgow Education Committee at the time. But from the start, Fonetti House was a place where the little girls were traumatised by physical, emotional and sexual abuse. As a typical stay in Fonetti was only six weeks or less, the constant throughput meant that many hundreds and up to several thousands of girls were subjected to this re regime every year. The abuse continued unchecked from 1961 until the facility ceased to be a residential school in 1990. During the three decades span, the abusive management regime was constantly at work, first under head teacher Nellie Webster Bremner and then under her deputy and successor Margaret Lapsley or Pearl Fletcher. During this period, the school remained free from inspection or other effective oversight, both under the governance of the Corporation of the City of Glasgow and under the management of the post-1975 successor, Strathclyde Regional Council. A combination of the 30-year regime of cruelty, dereliction of duty of care of those in overall authority, the size of the facility and the constant turnover of residential children meant that Fornetti is unique in scale. For tens of thousands of little Glaswegian girls suffered there. Many suffer still. Okay, thank you, David. Yeah. And uh, David, I, I think it's only fair we can say to our audience, tremendous amount of work um, went into those events by, of course, the Fenethi women themselves. They are the ones that came together with the strength and courage to push it through. But we're also able to say that you have obviously um, been assisting from the sidelines and that guidance seems to have paid off. So uh, we'll just uh, add that in for our audience. Well, if governments seem to be particularly poor at uncovering the truth, they're remarkably good at covering up. And uh, UK Column for over a year has been aware of a, an interesting story in the background pretty unpleasant in, at the heart of it, um, but we've been unable to report in any detail on it because it has been so sensitive. Uh, but that story is now beginning to break fully into the uh, media. So let's have a look. This is the Express here. High court case linked to Derek allegations threatens to put strain on UK uh, US relations. And if we bring in a little bit of the meat, the UK government is being sued for damages by a former civil servant who claims he was dragged out of his bed when recovering from cancer surgery after being framed for leaking embarrassing revelations about ex-UK ambassador uh, to the US, Lord Derrick. Now, we absolutely know this man was dragged out of his bed because uh, we had information about the event within a couple of hours of it happening, a brutal, um, really, assault on him by uh, police, some 14 police, as we'll see in a minute. And he was uh, very unwell. Uh, there were some other things that took place uh, in his flat, which I'm not going to talk about because they're simply too vile, uh, but it shows that the police acting in a really brutal way. If I just add to the text of that one on screen, uh, the row threatens to engulf more than 20 senior UK Whitehall mandarins, including Antonia Romeo, a Whitehall high flyer who was previously at the UK Consulate General in New York and was at the time permanent secretary to the Department for International Trade. She's now heading the Ministry of Justice. Well, there's more reports. Um, we're up to the uh, 26th of May. Here's the Telegraph. Ministers try to cover up claims ambassador leaked intelligence to secret lover. Civil servant says his arrest 
was to protect diplomat Lord Darica's claims of relationship with Michelle Kinsinki emerged. Now, the lady in question denies the allegation, so it's important that we put that on screen. But the reports go on. Here's the Daily Express US. Congress could investigate former UK ambassador over uh, secrets for sex intelligence leaks. And uh, we're bringing some more here. Is the folk, uh, Lord Derrick is the focus of a high court case in the UK. The secrets allegedly leaked by Derrick included the most sensitive Five Eyes intelligence shared between the UK, US, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Um, the complainant in the case was fingered for the leak about Derek and was arrested for the crime, but the case was later dropped. Remember, this is a man who had his uh, door kicked in by 14 police very early in the morning, dragged out of his bed, brutalized in his own property. And what was all this about? It was for the government to cover up what had been taking place. Uh, when he was arrested, 40 counter-terrorism police broke into his London home, London home in 2020, dragged him from his bed where he was recovering from cancer surgery. He was later left homeless and attempted suicide. This is because everything he owned was taken from him. The UK government has signalled its intention to try and hold the case in secret, a bit like family courts, behind closed doors on national security grounds. Now, this was a statement made by the complainant himself. He said, I'm not a terrorist. I've never been accused of terrorism. Despite this, not for the first time, British Council Terrorism legislation and British counter-terrorism forces have been, quote, weaponized against me, unquote. The civil service falsely accused me of leaking former UK ambassador Kim Derrick's official sensitive documents and reported me to the Metropolitan Police Counter-Terrorism Command as the police confirmed to me. So a vicious stitch up by the British state in order to cover up wrong uh, wrongdoing done by whoever, because that's not proven at the moment, um, but the man utterly brutalised. Uh, he also uh, made a complaint, we understand, to the Met Police, and this apparently challenged that officers had, at the time, insufficient evidence to warrant the arrest under the Official Secrets Act and misconduct in a public office, and that officers had no justification in forcing entry into the claimant's house on the 13th of October 2020. So this is really a cesspit, but the sort we've heard of before, that once the UK government is going to be exposed, then everything clamps down. Here's the Express. Uh, this is from Saturday, May the 27th. Fresh allegations that top UK trade officials were anti-Brexit, nepotistic and bullying. And uh, the, the whole saga is expanding now. So the Department for International Trade was politically biased against Brexit, rife with nepotism and had a culture of bullying, shocking evidence provided in the High Court case uh, has claimed. Now, this is evidence coming in from the claimant as he has been uh, putting his case forward, more and more dirt about the realities of the conduct in the civil service and the government is emerging. The government is currently applying for the case, which centres on alleged leaks of top secrets by Britain's former ambassador to the US, Lord Kim Darrock, to be held in secret behind closed doors on national security grounds. So David, I'm going to throw that one back at you because what a contrast when the government wants to uh, 
make sure that none of its dirty laundry is going to be seen by the public. Everything is possible. 14 police to arrest one man. I think he was in the company of a lady the day they kicked the door in. Uh, but if we try and expose the brutality and uh, bullying and sexual abuse of children, it, it's all remarkably diff uh, difficult. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, you put that as a contrast, but let us let us see if we find out more about the abuse of the children. You might find it's not so much a contrast, but rather two sides of the one coin, uh, because the reason that it's so often difficult to expose uh, the abuse of children is the very same reason that that man's door was kicked down, which is it's in the interest of the power, powerful that it is done. Um, so the powerful want to fit some people up and cover other things up. And um, it's up to all of us uh, not to buy it, not to be fooled by the PR spin that goes along with it, to ask questions um, and to give people a, an audience when they, when they are speaking out, because it requires a huge amount of courage um, to, to, to stand up against it and to speak out and, and say the simple truth. Yeah. Well, I'll just end on a little anecdotal story, but uh, I've been speaking to some members of the Conservative Party who tell me that there are some amazing things happening inside the party, essentially the formation of two groups. They were decide, uh, described to me as almost parties within a party. Um, one group uh, uh, held the meeting in Bournemouth. The other group was up in London. Um, Rhys uh, Mogg was a member of both groups, took part in both groups. Uh, but it appears that amongst other things, this is immense pushback that the members of the Tory party feel that they've simply been alienated now. They're not important. Nobody wants to talk to them. They're a sideline issue while the politics goes on. Um, but of course, the other thing is that uh, our illustrious prime minister is now being seen simply as a globalist with no interest in, in any conservatism of any shape or form. So we will uh, look to report in more detail on this, but just a fascinating uh, account of uh, a Tory party now literally falling into two pieces. Okay, David, let's uh, move on to, well, environmental issues and, uh, well, Glasgow has its own uh, ultra-low emission zone. Uh, there was protest at the weekend. There was. So we start off with the uh, information from Glasgow City Council on the ultra-low emission zone. This is one of several in Scottish cities. Uh, they write, we need to reduce levels of harmful vehicle emissions in our city centre. These can cause health problems, particularly uh, for those most vulnerable. More on that part of the story shortly. Uh, that's why from the 1st of June 2023, our low emission zone will come into force. Uh, all vehicles entering the city centre area will need to meet the less polluting emission standards or face a penalty charge. And it explains why Glasgow needs a low emission zone. Um, and they, they explain that the problem is harmful levels of nitrogen dioxide being recorded in the city centre, levels that do not meet uh, legal requirements. So that's the reason. So. First question, what are the legal requirements? World Health Organization air quality guidelines, nit nitrogen dioxide, NO2, concentrations, um, annual average 10 milligrams per cubic meter, 
and uh, 24 hour mean not more than 25 milligrams per cubic meter. That's micrograms, okay. by the way. Sorry, what did I say? You said milligrams. It's I should micrograms. have said micrograms. Yeah. Sorry, mm -hmm. beg your pardon, micrograms. Um, and uh, so let's go to um, ScotGov air quality measurement uh, website. So here we have the results. What is um, the uh, the hourly mean in this case uh, at nine nine uh, o'clock in the morning? So rush hour time in Glasgow. Oh, it's low. It's less than twenty five. So it's not a problem. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. So uh, we're now joined uh, by uh, Di McMillan, who was at the protest. Um, so Di, can we start with, um, if we don't have um, elevated levels of nitrogen dioxide, why do we have a low emission zone in Glasgow? That is a very good question, David, uh, and it's one that we are all here in Glasgow asking ourselves, uh, particularly the people <clears throat> who are uh, suffering at the hands of this. Uh, one organisation who I spoke to at the protest on Saturday had some very interesting conversation about that whole situation uh, and the in actual fact, it's the poor the homeless and the vulnerable who are potentially going to suffer most at the hands of this. Um, the gentleman that I spoke to from the Homeless Project Scotland, his name is Colin, uh, Colin McInnes. He told me that within the low emission zone, we have got, we're housing over 800 homeless people within this should we, uh, I reckon it's probably about a mile square of city centre. Now, one has to ask, where exactly are these people being housed? That's part of the question, I suppose. Uh, and the answer to that would be, oh, that would be all the city centre hotels that are just ram jammed, packed full of uh, the vulnerable and homeless people. Uh, yeah, it's it's an absolute catastrophe. The 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 situation I think will uh, unless there are uh, except exemptions made for certain or uh, certain people, organisations, individuals, you know, uh, people with the blue badges and that kind of thing. It's not going to get any the, better. The well, okay, so we've got we've got some clips now uh, of of your discussions uh, with uh, Colin McInnes um, uh, from the protest. Hi, Colin. It's Di here from UK Column. I wonder if you might be able to uh, expand a wee bit and tell us a wee bit about your project and what the, the implications are with the the low emission zones that are being introduced in Glasgow. Yep, so my name's Colin McInnes. I am the, the chairman and co-founder of Homeless Project Scotland. Um, we have a, a soup kitchen underneath here in Lumberella that feeds uh, up to 300 people a night every night of the week in Glasgow. Um, low emission zones um, wasn't a huge concern for us because we were told that any vehicle that was a 15 plate or above would pass the low emissions. 
So we didn't check any of our vehicles um, because there's 16 plates. One of our volunteer drivers that came and spoke to us and said, this isn't going to pass the emissions. We checked it, that was right. We immediately contacted Glasgow City Council and we'd asked them if they could give us an exemption a couple of months to allow us time to crowdfund and get the money for the vehicle. Um, Glasgow City Council came back within 24 hours and said that um, our service wasn't an exceptional circumstance to have an exemption. So they refused us an exemption. Um, so we were then faced with having to crowdfund for a new vehicle. Um, Thankfully, within 24 hours, the generous public have donated £16,000 and we are now able to purchase another vehicle and put another vehicle that's compliant on the road. But I just think it's an absolute shambolic mess and a disgrace of Gladwell City Council to be sent to a homeless charity that has no paid staff, has no profits and is feeding the homeless and vulnerable and hungry from, from uh, birth to the pension. And we've got one other short clip just as you've completed that conversation with uh, with Colin. And I'm assuming that the situation for the homeless and vulnerable is only getting worse with the level of immigration that's happening. I mean, I, I know that there are 100,000 less properties for rental or for purchasing that is necessary for the people I, um, I, I, I couldn't comment again in regards to that because I don't know enough about it. Um, all I do know is that when we have somebody on the streets who has got um, no recourse to public funds, it's extremely difficult for us as a charity because the council will not accommodate them. The council will leave them lying on the street. And it's extremely difficult for us as a charity. Um, and it's, it, it, the problem is getting bigger. Um, but what else I say as well, and I go back to the, the low emission zone, is there's 800 homeless people who are accommodated in homeless accommodation in Glasgow city centre emission zone. It's they people that's asking for an exemption. So they've ignored the people that need that food. So, um, Di, the it's the poor and the vulnerable who can't afford a new car, can't afford a new vehicle, um, who might need to either work or live in the city centre that are being affected. And, and it doesn't seem to be, certainly not very convincingly justified by any statistics. Have you any idea what is actually driving this policy? Well, I think that when we consider the the Scottish governmental situation where it's a coalition between the SNP, Scottish National Party and the Green Party, uh, it's often said that the tail is wagging the dog where this coalition is concerned and the Green Party are uh, very much driving much of Scottish government policy. So there is that. I think, though, when we consider that Glasgow City Council have given themselves an exemption for their own vehicles, yet they won't allow a vehicle to come in to the city centre to feed the homeless and the vulnerable. Now, I, I, I'd like to just point out when Colin uh, had said in the video, the Healingman's 
umbrella to to give an explanation of that. Uh, historically, people from the Highlands of Scotland would travel to Glasgow, and there is a, a rail bridge that goes over the top of Argyll Street. And in inclement weather, that's where the people from the Highlands would gather to be collected to go off and do their day's work. Uh, it's quite an interesting history, but uh, that aside, um, yeah, it's uh, it's economic apartheid is what it is. Uh, and the people that ultimately are suffering are the people who just don't have the funds to instantly buy the compliant vehicles or electric buses or whatever it is the the Glasgow City Council are expecting us all to travel about in. Yeah. And I would simply end this piece by pointing out that once again, it's the World Health Organization that's driving the analysis, the policy, the statistics, the thresholds for action. And it's the local authorities, local governments, and national governments that are that are simply complying with it. So again, this is this relates to uh, unaccountable bureaucrats and and a one-world governmental system that we have uh, no control over, and it's not responding to the people because the people of Glasgow, as far as I can tell, don't want this. I mean, it was it's just to, just to close off in the, the local response. Die is am I right in this? This is an, a very unpopular policy. It certainly is an unpopular policy. I think that I, so there's a, a court case coming up, well, a challenge to the, the low emission zone from a garage owner, a, a repair shop in the east end of Glasgow, who is just inside the low emission zones, who has got one third of his customers who don't have vehicles that comply. And so, you know, it's the, the thing of, uh, before your car breaks down, can you please make sure that it actually complies with the, the, the low emission zone so that we can bring it to our uh, service centre to repair it for you? Don't have an accident before you do that. Thank you very much. And I hopefully will not see you within the any anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, good luck with that. Okay, Di, thank you very much. Okay, well, I'll just end with a little anecdotal subject that I was talking um, to um, social services during lockdown about accommodation for homeless people, a very helpful lady up in Bristol. And she said, well, things are very good for us at the moment. And I was surprised and said, why? And she said, well, because we've got unlimited money, money from the government to make sure there are no homeless people on the streets. But uh, when I went back to speak to her after lockdown, she told me very quickly that she was just almost too embarrassed to talk because they were now turfing homeless people out of their newfound accommodation to put them back on the streets because the government had simply uh, removed the funding. So um, one thing for homeless people, but prosecution of the war in Ukraine, money is no object. I think we'll leave it there. We'll let our audience reflect on those things. Um, David and uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. And big thank you to Di. She's staying on with us for extra time, I believe. So we'll see you there, Di. And uh, we just say to everybody, wherever you are in the world, thank you for joining us. It does get increasingly difficult to uh, report the news as it is uh, because we couldn't make it up, really.
What else can we say? We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.